0: Hello everybody, this is our fifth sermon looking at the book of 1 Kings and the life of Solomon. Today we are in 1 Kings chapter 7 starting at verse 13 and going through to verse 21 of chapter 8. And the title of this sermon is Solomon Furnishes the Temple. This week Emily and I celebrated our wedding anniversary We've now been married for nine years. I still remember the day I first entered Emily's house. She was living in a flat with her best friend at the time in a rather dingy part of Leicester. We were just getting to know each other, so she welcomed me at the door, sat me down in the living room and went off to make some drinks. That left me rather nervously looking around for a few minutes. Suddenly my eyes landed on a rather large bookcase that dominated the room. It needed to be large because the books upon it were very thick. I couldn't help myself. I got up and went to have a closer look. There were all the classics. Austen, Dickens, Dostoevsky, Shakespeare, Virginia Woolf. There were mighty biographies of Nelson Mandela and William Wilberforce. There were even some very unexpected entries from Karl Marx, Machiavelli, Plato... To this day, I still remember standing there thinking, Wow, if this turns into a relationship, this woman is going to keep me on my toes. In that moment, I suddenly had a huge respect for Emily. I wanted to know so much more about her. Yes, some men go for looks, others for a sense of humour, but I fell in love with Emily because of her bookcase. A few minutes later, Emily came back into the room carrying drinks and biscuits, and there was I, sat back on the sofa trying to play it all cool. But soon conversation began, and I learned about her English degree and her passion for social justice. I discovered what really made her tick, and I loved it. The rest is history. Now, whenever I tell this story about how I began to fall in love with Emily, Emily normally just rolls her eyes and laughs. She said numerous times that if she'd placed her music or her film collection out on display in the living room, things would have turned out very differently. Emily is not here in church today, so I can tell you honestly that she's not wrong. Had I seen all her pop CDs and her Disney films, I would probably have run a mile. Oh, the joys of falling in love. I do hope she's not listening to this online. Anyway, let's get to the point that I'm trying to make. What we put in our homes says a lot about us. It's as if our home furnishings Speak to all those who come through our doors about who we are and what is most important to us just for a moment picture your own home what have you got on display in those areas of the house that people are likely to see what is on the walls of your hallway or living room what adorns your bookcases and display cabinets i wonder what your home furnishings say about you I'm sure many of you will have photographs of family members, children, grandchildren, pictures of special occasions, and all of these declare how big a place family has in your heart. I'm sure many of you will have a cross on the mantelpiece, a verse on the wall, or a Bible on the bookshelf, all of which speak about your faith. I know many of you will have comfortable seating and a large dining table, which demonstrate your enjoyment of entertaining friends and being with others. There'll be a whole host of other objects, pictures, decorations, souvenirs that will carry a message of what is most important to you or display aspects of your character. When you get home, have a look around you. You'll see how true this is. How we furnish our homes says a lot about us as people. Even if you went into the home of someone you didn't know, you could find out a lot about them just by reading the room. Now, I hope you can see why I have begun the sermon in this way. In our reading today, we discovered how King Solomon furnished a house. Not just any old house, but the house of the Lord, the great temple in Jerusalem. Solomon had gone to great lengths in building the temple. It had taken him seven long years with the help of thousands of workers. And last time out, in chapter 5, verse 5, we discovered why he had gone to all this effort. He wanted to build a temple for the name of the Lord his God. Solomon wanted the temple to honour and glorify God by the way it was built and the items it contained. Just building the temple was an act of worship as well as it becoming a place for worship. But more than that, when Solomon said he wanted to build a temple for the name of the Lord his God, he's also thinking of God's reputation. He wanted this temple to speak. He wanted the temple to communicate something of who God is to all the people who came across it. He wanted this temple to be a witness to all the peoples of the world about what the God of Israel was like and why they needed to get to know him for themselves. For this reason, very careful thought had to go into every aspect of the temple's design and furnishing. Everything had to carry the right message. Every object had to represent God in a way that God himself was happy with. And our passage today gives the intricate description of how Solomon went about this task. What I would like us to do now is to have a look at the different furnishings and think about what they are saying about God. I hope we will find that in what they reveal of God's character, there is great encouragement for us in our lives today. So let's journey through our passage and take the items of furniture in order. The first thing described to us, and indeed the first thing you would see as a pilgrim approaching the temple, were two grey bronze pillars. These were enormous, over eight metres high, five metres in circumference. They really would have dominated your view. So what were these two pillars supposed to communicate about God? Well, we don't have to do any guessing on this because we are told exactly in the text. Each of the pillars were given a name. One was called Jachin, which means he establishes or he makes sure. The other was called Boaz, which means in him is strength. These pillars then were designed to communicate the strength of God. As worshippers came up to the temple, they were poignantly reminded that the Lord is all-powerful. Looking up at those two giant pillars made out of solid bronze must have been quite an overwhelming experience. But if you were struggling in life, if you felt weak or insecure, then there must have been something greatly reassuring about their solidity. Still today, we should take time to reflect on the strength of God. When we are weak, when we are at the end of our own resources, we are to call out to God in prayer and allow him to step in. This theme of strength gets continued and expanded upon by the next item of furniture that is described to us, the sea of cast metal. There in the temple courtyard stood a huge metal bowl. It was 14 metres in circumference and contained 44,000 gallons of water. It was vast. It was also a technical marvel, perched as it was on 12 bronze oxen. What was this sculpture all about? In Jewish thinking, the sea was a fearful thing. In fact, the Jews were so afraid of it, the sea took on almost mythic proportions. The sea is restless and always moving, so to them it resembled all that is chaotic in life. The sea is dangerous, unpredictable, and contains great monsters of the deep. It therefore came to resemble all that works to bring harm, things like disaster, disease, and violent foes. But here in the temple, was a great sea of water encased in a bronze bowl. The water was still, peaceful. The sea was contained and kept well under control. This was not a sea to be fearful of, but a sea to marvel at in its beauty. Right at the beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures, and there is an important detail. When God created the world his spirit hovered over the chaotic, formless waters of the deep. From the dark and dangerous, God brought order and beauty. From chaos, he brought life and peace. And this is what this great sculpture was supposed to communicate to pilgrims entering the temple. The God of Israel is the creator of the whole world, and to this day, he sits as Lord over all its chaos. God did not just create the world and disappear He's remained intimately connected to it and right now he is working to restore peace, order and beauty to all those situations that unsettle and frighten us. The sculpture then is designed to communicate the sovereignty is God. It's because God is sovereign that he can always be trusted. It is thought that the bulls may have some link to the Canaanite gods, Yam and Baal, who were thought to represent the sea and storm. This sculpture is saying in no uncertain terms that God is sovereign over them as well. It's because the Lord created the world out of the restless sea that we know those gods don't even exist. As pilgrims saw this technological wonder, they were to give up their devotion to idols and place all their faith in the Lord. Still today we need to draw strength from the sovereignty of God. We are living in a time of chaos The pandemic, climate change, supply shortages, terrorism, they've all been in the news over recent weeks. And these stories unsettle us, they make us worry. And that's before we even start thinking about the anxiety driven just by daily life and the trials we face at work and home. Every single one of us needs to hear that despite the turmoil of the world, our God still reigns. In the grand scheme of things, his purposes are so sure... We can still our restless hearts until they resemble the mirror pond of the great sea. God is in control and he's working to bring order and beauty out of the chaos. Let us be still and seek peace in the sovereignty of the Lord. There really is nowhere else to look for it. So God is strong and God is sovereign. The temple furniture is beginning to speak to us. What comes next? Well the next item is a little more tricky. From verse 27 of chapter 7 we begin to have 10 bronze stands described to us. Each of these stands has wheels so they could be moved about and they were designed to hold up 10 bronze basins each of which could hold nearly 900 litres of water. What were these for? Well their function remains a little unclear they're never fully explained but they were probably used in the sacrifice system of the temple. They could have been wheeled over to where the pilgrims congregated in groups. and There the people could have washed their hands and their bodies and the animals they had brought to sacrifice. And once this was done, the animals could be taken up by the priests for burning on the altar. We struggle to picture this today, for we have nothing like it. But we need to understand what a gift this aspect of the temple's work was to the people. Think about it. God had made a way for the people's sins to be forgiven. He had made a way for broken relationships to be restored. By coming to the temple, washing and offering a costly sacrifice, the people were cleansed, they were sanctified. Not because the rituals were magic or the animals were imbued with a special power, but purely because God decided this would work. We all know that shedding blood is serious sin is serious we all know that blood resembles life so to have our lives restored life had to be given the sacrifice system taught the people how important it was to be in good standing with god but also just how far god had gone to enable that to be possible after all each animal that was given up belonged to god in the long run he was the one really paying the price The Bible bends over backwards to tell us that God is a holy God. He is spotless and perfect. But God also wants to be with his people. He wants to enjoy their presence and share in their lives. And in order to do that, God had to come up with a way of dealing with sin. Because we just couldn't do it ourselves. And in the Old Testament, that was arranged through the sacrifice system of the temple. In a moment, we'll think about what all the imagery of these sacrifices pointed towards. But for now, let's just draw hope from the fact that the God we worship is still the God who longs to sanctify us. We've gone wrong so many times. We've made so many mistakes in life. We've hurt others, damaged God's world and failed to do good when we had the chance. But God doesn't want us to walk around each day with the burdens of shame and regret. He wants to pick us up and wipe us clean. He wants us to know full forgiveness and the delight he takes in us. And if you're listening to this and still think of yourself as unforgivable, hear again that our God is a sanctifying God and he wants to make you whole. If we confess our sins, he will truly forgive. We will be washed clean and restored into fellowship with him. For our next aspect of God's character communicated by the temple I want us to take a group of furnishings together. Our passage described hundreds of pomegranates cast into bronze and gold and decorating the pillars stands and walls of the temple. Our passage also described a gold table on which was placed loaves of bread. Thirdly it described 10 golden lampstands that burned right through the night. Put all these together and I think we can see something of the security that is found in God. The pomegranates speak of life and harvest. Year after year God faithfully provides what his people need. The bread placed on the table was a reminder of how God provided his people with manna during the wilderness and still met their daily requirements. The bread was placed on the table as a daily gift to the Lord But as the people gave, they did so realizing that they could only give because God had given first to them. And then there were the lampstands burning brightly through the long, dark hours of night. They spoke of God's presence, keeping the people of the city safe, even while they slept. They spoke of hope, because after the darkness, light would always return. Do you see all these items teach the people to trust in the ongoing faithfulness of God? Security for the future does not come simply from our own human effort, although God's provision is not an excuse for laziness on our part. Security comes from having a God who knows our needs and has the power and the desire to provide for them day by day. We're not to spend our lives worrying. We really can trust in the Lord. He keeps the seasons turning. He ensures his world provides enough for our needs and he never ever sleeps. If we find ourselves needing help this day, let us ask the Lord. Let's not thrash ourselves to death, working every hour God sends. Let us find our security in him. So the pillars spoke of God's strength. The sea spoke of his sovereignty. The basins and the altars spoke of God's desire to sanctify us. And the pomegranates, the bread table and the lampstand spoke of the security God brings for daily life. There is one major furnishing left, the Ark of the Covenant. And now we've come to the most precious object of all. The Ark spoke of several things. It was seen as the great throne of God. In some special way, God dwelt between the cherubim on the cover. It was the container of Israel's most precious document, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. And it was a visual reminder of God and how he had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. For God had given the instructions for the ark's creation as soon as he busted them out. In all these ways, the ark spoke to the Jews of salvation. God had saved them from brutal slave labor. And he'd done this personally. He'd come down and made his presence known. And the ongoing salvation of God's people was assured by the covenant he'd made with them on Mount Sinai. Israel would always be his people and the Lord would always be their God. The Ten Commandments were the instruction for the people on how to live within that covenant. If the people followed his word, God would always rescue them from their enemies. And we can see just how much the Ark meant to the Jews. As Solomon brought it into the temple, sheep were sacrificed at almost every step. It was then placed in the most holy place in the temple, the inner sanctuary. And once there, it was almost never seen. Only one priest went in, and only on one day of the year. The ark was precious because it spoke of a precious thing. The holy God, the Lord of heaven and earth, was Israel's saviour. And he provided the instruction for them to go on experiencing his great salvation. Our whole faith as Christians today is based on the same truth. God is our saviour. He has saved us from sin. He has saved us from death. He has saved us from evil, the devil and hell. He saved us from the prisons and the slavery of our lives and set us free into his love, hope and peace. These are still holy, holy truths. We are now nearly ready to draw this study to a close. We have discovered how the furnishings of our homes say much about our character. And Solomon designed the temple, the house of the Lord, to work in much the same way. By looking at the objects Solomon put inside, we have been reminded of God's strength, his sovereignty, his desire to sanctify us, the security he brings us day by day, and above all else, the fact that God is our saviour. There is so much already for us to take away. But there is one more thing that we really need to mention, for it is very important. For a house to become a home, it must be lived in. Otherwise, it's just a showroom. God had promised Solomon and his father David that he would dwell among his people. He would take up residence right in their midst. As our passage ended, we saw this come to pass. Let me read these verses again, 1 Kings 8, 10-13. After all the furnishings had been put in place and when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priest couldn't perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And then Solomon said, The Lord had said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Above all the furnishings that Solomon put in the temple was the furnishing God made. He furnished it with himself. He moved in and took up residence. This is not to say that God was no longer everywhere, that he was no longer looking out over all his creation. No, not at all. God can never be confined by four walls. But God did keep his promise and become especially present in the temple. A cloud is a really good symbol of this, isn't it? A cloud is visible, yet you're unable to hold it. You can see its presence, yet you cannot contain it or control it. And so too with God in the Old Testament. He wanted to dwell among his people. He wanted to be by their side so they could call upon him by name. He wanted the temple to be a place where people from all nations could come and seek him out. He wanted to be a very personal God, but in a way that people could still not take him for granted. And perhaps this is the most important aspect of his character to take away. Our God loves us and wants to be with us personally. He wants to watch over our lives. He wants to provide and protect. He wants to forgive and to save. He wants to bring us security. And nothing does that more than us knowing that God is always with us. This is a gift so great Solomon could only say thank you. Our passage ended with him launching into a prayer of thanksgiving as the cloud of God's glory descended. And the same response is appropriate from us today. And of course, we have even more to thank God for than Solomon did. For as we live 3,000 years later, we can see what all this Old Testament imagery really points towards. A God who wants to be with his people. A God who is saviour a God who is sovereign king, a God who knows how sacrifices forgive sin. Everything that was in that temple is a signpost to Jesus. When Jesus came to earth, he described his body as a temple, the place that God was present. It was Jesus who sanctifies us from sin through his death on the cross. It is Jesus, the king of kings, who reigns over all and one day will return to turn the world's chaos into peace. As Christians, we have the privilege of knowing this Jesus personally. We no longer go to his house. He comes into ours. He's with us always by the Holy Spirit. We have so much to thank God for. And the temple furnishings give us a clue as to what to say thank you for. May we allow them to speak an encouragement into our lives, just as they did all those years ago.